0: We're going to be reading out of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is God's word. It's true, and it's given out of his love. You may be seated.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Stacey. Well, yeah, it's great to be worshiping with you all this morning. And as Stacy was saying, this, as we prepare for Easter, it's such a great opportunity to invite people who would not normally a- attend a church service on a Sunday morning to come hear of the good news of Jesus. And, and we always want to remind ourselves that we, we want to be this place where even if you don't feel like you're a church person or if you don't grow up in the church or really understand a lot of the religious lingo and stuff, that this is a place where you can be loved well and you can experience the love of Jesus through the love of his people. So that's our heart and our prayer for Easter is that God would use us to love lots of people uh, who don't normally come to church. So I uh, appreciate you guys uh, praying for that end as well. And also then for the baptism stuff, uh, if you want to be baptized and you haven't been baptized yet, please come talk to me uh, at before uh, church is over today. Probably after church is over. Don't come up right now because we've probably <laughs> got some other stuff going on. All right. Well, as we get going here, I want to begin with a little bit of a self-reflection for all of us. We are both corporately and as individuals. Um, let's answer this question. Uh, what are you known for? Or what are we collectively known for as people? So when, when someone thinks of you, what comes to their mind? Okay, or, or in other ways, uh, if someone had to describe you besides your appearance, how, what, what words would they use to describe you? My, my sister told me one time that uh, she had a friend who said, the thing I like about Colbert is that he tries so hard to avoid awkward situations, and those awkward situations follow him like a disease anyway. <laughs> And I told my sisters, like, not everything people tell you about me, you have to let me know. You could keep that one to yourself. Uh, But we all have things that people, when they think of us, that comes to mind. And the same is true for us as a church, right? When someone thinks of our church what is the thing that comes to mind? How would they describe our church? For many people in Falcon, it's, oh, that must be the Spanish-speaking church in town, right? Missio Day, it sounds Spanish. Uh, but, for, but if someone has come to our church and they've experienced a Sunday gathering, how would they describe our gatherings? What are the things that they would use? That What, what are the, the things that we are known for as Christians? Or you can take this question and expand it to a more uh, national setting, right? When someone thinks of Christians in America, what is it that comes to mind for those people, right? It, it, how would you describe the... American church? And, and some of those answers are at each level as an individual, as a church, or as an American church. If we're honest, some of the ways that we would be described is not that comfortable. It's not something that we would necessarily want uh, or to lean into or want to believe about us. But the thing is, uh, people's description of us, people's opinions of us, is actually something that God cares about. What we're going to see in First Peter this morning is that that the way that we behave reflects on who our Savior is. Okay, and so if we say that Jesus is a mighty and a beautiful and a powerful Savior, our behavior should point people to the character of Jesus. But if you look at our American society, especially the last three years, unfortunately, many of the images that non-Christians have seen of the American church have not been beautiful in their display, that they've been anything but God glorifying in how we have acted as, as Christians. And so one of the things we have to say is not every person's description of us is accurate or fair. Right, just because someone believes certain things about us doesn't mean that it's true. Like, so if you think of the early church, uh, the, the way that uh, non-Christian writers in the first century would describe Christians is that they were uh, atheistic, incestuous cannibals. Okay, that, that's the three words they would describe because if you think about it, in a polytheistic culture, if you believe there's only one God, that appears to be atheism to people who worship many gods. All right, and then the, uh, these these people would be married and they would go to church and they would call each other brother and sister in Christ and they're like, that's weird that that dude married his sister they must be into some incest kind of things and then as they would gather at church they would eat some guy's blood and they or drink some guy's blood and eat some guy's flesh and so you put all that together and the non-christian world saw christians as atheistic incestuous cannibals okay so just because we are viewed a certain way doesn't mean that that's true but how we behave should reflect the savior that we worship Okay, the beauty of our behavior should point people to the beauty of our Savior. So we're going to open First Peter this morning, and we're going to see what God has to say about our behavior and how that should align with the character of the Savior that we have in Jesus. So before we study, though, would you join me in praying this morning? Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for this opportunity to be able to gather as your people uh, to be the the bride of of Christ to to focus on what it means to be uh, those who have been called out and saved by your son and so as we study this passage, as we open up 1 Peter I pray that you would enliven our hearts to see what you have for us this morning I pray that as we study these words that we would be challenged in all the appropriate ways God, where there's repentance needed, may we come humbly to you and ask for forgiveness Uh, where there is uh, a, a need of a greater sense of identity in you. I pray that we would find that transformation through the beauty of your son uh, and God and where there is a, a mission that needs to advance, where there's world a world that is hurting and in need of your salvation. I pray that you would embolden us to, sh- to share the good news of the gospel with our neighbors. On this, in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen mean, So we are in the uh, middle of the study of the book of 1 Peter. We're about a chapter and a half in. And so far, I think this is, this is one of the most important books that we could study as American Christians in the 21st century. There's so many important concepts for us. But what I love so far as we're, you know, through the 10 verses of chapter 2 is how much Peter spends his time emphasizing the identity that we have in Christ, what, what it means for our, our, our sense of our self-worth, our sense of who we are as followers of Jesus to have been transformed by the cross. And so what, what Peter is doing is, this book is written to some people who are experiencing suffering. They're not—they're not being martyred yet. They're not have like physical persecution, but they are experiencing being ostracized or shunned by society. In some ways, it's a—it's a good reflection of what we feel in America if you are a Bible-believing, uh, Christ-honoring Christian. And so, what Peter is doing is writing to a group of people who are suffering, and and he's writing this book that is has this theme of hope dripped throughout the entire thing. First, Peter is the epistle of hope or the letter of hope. And when we talk about hope, it's not how we. Would would use it as 21st century Americans, right? When we say hope, we mean, I really hope something happens. I'm not confident that it's going to take place, but that'd be really nice if it took place in the future. But that's not how biblical authors describe hope. Hope in the Bible is an expectation for tomorrow that gives you strength for today, Hope in the Bible is something that you are are confident will take place in the future because you understand the character of God that you have encountered here in the present. And so what Peter is doing as he builds hope for us, it's like we're on this road, this journey of hope. And what he does first is he turns our eyes backward and he says, look at the cross. Look at what Jesus did for you on the cross. Look at the power of the resurrection that he died and then three days later rose again. And because of that resurrection, he has given you new life. You, You have been born again to a living hope. Look at the past and get that firmly in your mind. And then look at the future. See what inheritance is waiting you. The future that you have with Jesus when he comes again and when his kingdom is fully realized here on uh, earth as it is in heaven and on that journey between what happened on the cross and what will happen in the second coming is our current location and this place is called hope. We can look back and see what Jesus did. We can look forward to Jesus coming and say we have a confidence that the world will turn out the way that God designed it to because Jesus is powerful over sin and death and he loves us enough to give us an inheritance in the future that we can come to. And so what what Peter's been doing is he's been he's been interspersing a few commands, he has a few things for us to do, but he's wrapping those in this reminder of who we are in Christ and what Jesus has done for us. Okay, There's this expression that the imperative always follows the indicative, and what that just means is who you are is always the direct result of what you then need to do. Our, our commands we have from Jesus always flow because of what he has done for us, and so last week we ended with this amazingly beautiful uh, passage in, in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, where, where Peter really gets to this climactic moment where he says this is who you are in Christ some of the most beautiful verses in the Bible he says but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And he's saying, so so this is who you are in Christ. This is what God has done for you. This is who you are as a new creation now. All of these things are true for every follower of Jesus. And so if that's who we are, then the next thing it leads us to is what should we do? How should we behave as we go about our lives in this day-to-day existence? That's where we're going to go next in 1 Peter 2. Let's pick it up in verses 11 and 12. And so, so these, these two verses mark a transition in the book. The first two chapters, he's focusing on what Jesus has done for us, how that's changed who we are in Christ, and now he's getting into how that should live out in our day-to-day existence. And so the, these two verses are kind of form the heading for the rest of the book. So that this week, we're going to talk about uh, how we relate to society, how we relate to government. Then we're going to talk about how we relate to our vocation and how we relate to our bosses and then how we relate to marriage and suffering and all these different things are going to come uh, up in the future, but they follow these two verses. And so so this heading is really important for us to dial in on. What we see in verses 11 and 12 is a reminder of who we are. Again, Peter can't get away from this reminder of our identity for too long before he circles back to this is who you are in Christ. So we we see a reminder of who we are. And then he talks about why cultivating holiness, why cultivating obedience to Jesus in our own souls is so important. So let's start again with this identity. Let's look again at verse 11. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and as exiles to abstain." Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Again, this is a reminder of who we are. And I love how he starts this very first word that he uses here is the word beloved. He, he, he doesn't just give us these commands from God without first reminding us that in Jesus we are loved sons and daughters of God. And the, your, your identity as someone who is dearly loved by Jesus is the most important thing about you. And I think too often in in church we can uh, hear these ideas of God's love, hear that God is is love, that God loves people, and never internalize them into our own souls. This was the story of my Christian life for the first, like, 35 years of my faith. The, The idea of, like, I had no problem believing that God loved you. I had a really big challenge believing that God loved me. And God used this book uh, called by Henry Nouwen called Life of the Beloved where he, he shows us how from Scripture we can see that, that the love of God is something that is personal and internal. And when you read a book like 1 Peter and it's addressed to the beloved of God, that applies to you and to me. That applies to all of us. Like don't ever just skim over that verse and not uh, look at it and see that that's how your identity has been transformed. If you ever try to obey the commands of Jesus apart from resting in the love that Jesus has for you, you are not living the Christian life. You're living a life that is based on works and trying to earn God's love for you. And that is not grace. That is not the gospel. That is not what Jesus invites us into. So this reminder that we are the beloved of God is one of the most important things for us to meditate on as we try to follow him and live what he does. And so what he does is reminds us that we're beloved. But then he also tells us what our context is. He says that you are sojourners and exiles. This is now the third time he's used this concept to say that as Christians we are not living in our homeland. Okay, we'd like the Jewish people in the Old Testament that were exiled to Babylon, if you are a follower of Christ, the world that you live in is not your eternal home. You were created for another country, and your heart is going to be restless and long for that other world until we see Jesus face to face. And so if we're going to obey Jesus, we have to remember that the land we're obeying him in is not our homeland. This is not our destination. And if we try to make our world and our context be our eternal fit, that's where we have all of these challenges that we face. Because ultimately, we have this longing inside that knows There is something else out there for us. And because there's that gap, this hole in our hearts that says we know there's something better for us, we want to fill that gap with the things around us. We want to look at our life and our jobs and our kids and our families and our houses and all these things and say, maybe if I just get this a little more organized, a little more together, then my heart will finally find the rest that I'm looking for. And Peter is reminding us, we are exiles and sojourners. This world is not our home this um, uh, this last year um, I, my grandparents passed away both of my dad's parents and they my dad has been working on trying to get their house ready to go on the market to, to be uh, be sold and it's been a really difficult thing for for me and for all of our family because that house has been in our home our family for over a hundred years so the Schultzes have lived in that house for a hundred years and as I was processing why it's so difficult for this thought of it going for sale I realized that this verse, the problem is I want to believe that I can make this earth earth my home if we just work hard enough. I, I, I want to think that somehow that there'll be this, this place in Newton, Iowa this home that I can go back to and find my identity in and, and it's a very natural thing for us to do to look at the physical existence and say maybe that's where I will belong but Peter's saying hey you are, you are a sojourner you're an exile it doesn't matter how long that home has been in your family's generations what matters is do you belong to God and if you do there is no amount of comfort on this earth that will ever make you actually at home here because you were created for another world So in light of that, he says uh, that that's our identity. So therefore, how do we live out our identity? Is we work to cultivate a holiness, a a God-honoring posture in our hearts. That's where he says that he urges us as exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your souls. And I I love the intensity of this verse, and and I love the vulnerable honesty in this verse as well. Saying that, like, if you're a follower of Christ, there is a war going on inside of your heart. And those things that you struggle with, those temptations you fall into, those things that you have done or that you struggle with that you feel like, I wonder if God even loves me because I do these kinds of things. What Peter is doing is he's saying that that is a part of the human existence. That is a part of what it means to be a follower of Christ, is there is an internal war that is raging in your soul. And these passions, these desires, are things that are contrary to God's wo- will. And because this war of our flesh exists inside of us, we need to fight that fight. We need to engage that war. We need to abstain from what the flesh is trying to lead us into. And so so with that, there's this reminder that uh, we shouldn't trust our feelings, right? As Americans, we're told that like, you know, you be you is the most important thing that you could do. If you have any urge inside of your heart, that's probably what you should follow. And Peter is saying, hey, just because you have that passion, that urge, that doesn't mean it's what's best for you. And in fact, quite honestly, most of our passions and the things that drive us inside of our hearts are things that are dangerous for our souls and that are actually warring against who God has called us to be. Uh, There's a a kid's book that we've been reading as a family called The the Wing Feather Saga by Andrew Peterson. And there's one quote that always stands out to me. It's from this grandfather figure who's talking to his grandkids. And he says, don't just follow your heart your heart will betray you. Think of what your father would do and do that instead. And I think that's such a good reminder for us, this idea of, like, has there ever been a more Disney theme in the world than follow your heart? We all grew up hearing this thing. of like, just follow your heart and you'll be fine. And he's reminding us, no, your heart is guided by these passions, these desires that are contrary to what God has for you. Don't follow your heart. Do what your father would do. Okay, and, and here's why I said this is encouraging because it shows us that even someone like Peter, you know, one of the, one of the greatest Christians who ever lived, he understands that internal struggle that we all have. When, when, when you feel like your heart is drawn to things that you know it shouldn't be, when you know that the sin that you still wrestle with hurts those around you, when, when, when you struggle with that same thing again and again that you keep trying to get over, all of that battle is something that is, is, is inevitable here on this earth. We should be encouraged by that fact. And we also should be encouraged that if Peter says, abstain from those passions, then there's hope that we will grow, that we can get better. He wouldn't say abstain if it wasn't something that we were able to do by the Holy Spirit's health, that we could finally progress in some sanctification. So that there's that, that old hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and then the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. If you find yourself struggling with those passions, the way you abstain is not by trying to fight the flesh harder. The way you fight the flesh is by looking deeper into the gaze of Jesus and being reminded that he loves you enough to die for you. And the more we find ourselves in the gaze of Jesus, the easier it is for the struggles of this world to disappear. One last thing I want to point out here, though, is, is uh, some of us don't feel this war taking place in our souls. Right? He's saying that you are in enemy territory and this battle is taking place. But who is it that doesn't experience the battle when they're in enemy territory? Is someone who looks so much like the enemy, the enemy doesn't see them as a threat. And I think that's something that we as American Christians need to begin to wrestle with is the idea of like how, how distinct are our lives? Do, do we look different enough from the world that there's actually a struggle going on within us, or do we cave for every desire that our neighbors do and end up looking just like them? And the reason that's important is because that is the thing that will fuel our ministry to our neighbors, our mission to our neighbors. If your neighbors don't know Jesus and their life falls apart, you need to live a distinct enough life, a holy enough life that they can look at you and see, I wonder what he or she has that is different than what I have. But, like, we've spent so much time, as, especially as, as younger Christians, trying to fit in with the world around us, trying to show, oh, we're not those weird Christians that, you know, that don't drink or, or have a TV in their house or any of those kinds of things like that. We've tried to assimilate so much and look just like our neighbors that when it comes time to give them the gospel, we look so similar, there's no reason they would ever look to us for help. And that's the point of what uh, Peter is trying to do us today, show us, is that how we behave, the beauty of our behavior should reflect the beauty of our Savior, which is what he says in verse 12. Man, I have to speed up way more. We're on the first verse still, so let's pick up the pace here, guys. Here we go. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay, the, the beauty of our behavior should reflect the beauty of our Savior. That's what Peter is saying here, this idea of missional holiness. The holiness that we have should be the thing that opens the door to our neighbors hearing the good news of Jesus. So he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, your way of life, the things that you are known for. When they think of you, what is the first thing that comes to mind? Your conduct should be honorable. Okay, so that word honorable means good and right and beautiful. Be be known for behaving beautifully so that when they think of you, they will see the beauty of our Savior. They will see the beauty of Jesus. And then he also tells us here that we should expect some discomfort. Right? He says that you're behaving beautifully, you're, you're keeping your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, right, we, we should expect discomfort. We should expect persecution for the good deeds that we do as followers of Christ. And, and chapter 4, Peter's going to go on to say that when you suffer, don't act like something strange is happening. Don't act like this bizarre thing just took place. Hardship hit my life. Don't act like it's strange. Jesus says himself in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Okay, so we should expect some discomfort as we follow Jesus, but we should know that our deeds and our behaviors serve the higher purpose of pointing people to the salvation that we have found in Jesus. Jesus. That's why the beauty of our behavior should point people to the beauty of our Savior. And we see that it says that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. that, That day of visitation is that end time moment we were talking about a little bit ago. It's the second coming. When Jesus returns, he's saying, when the second coming takes place, there should be people who are glorifying God, who are worshiping God, who are reflecting the fact that their heart has been changed by God because your behavior perked their interest in this gospel that we believe. Okay, so so our good deeds won't save anyone, but our good deeds should point people to the glory of Jesus. Okay, so we, we, I love to make fun of that quote, the, the fake quote from St. Francis of Assisi, the, the preach the gospel at all times and, and, and use words only if necessary. Like, it's a really stupid quote St. Francis would never have been that dumb to have said that. It's not, it's not really a St. Francis quote. But what is true about that is the idea that our behavior should point people to Jesus. At the end of the day, we have to still proclaim the gospel. You cannot believe in a Savior until you have heard the good news that his death was uh, in your place, atoning for your sins, and he rose again three days later. No amount of good deeds can replace that message. But our good deeds need to open the door to that message. They need to see our good deeds and be intrigued by the way that we love one another and the way we love other people that they say, I wonder who this Jesus is that they're worshiping. Again, we are not saved by our works, but our works should point people to the Savior. And we're not saved by our works, but our works should point people to the Savior. So, so then there's this question of if, if our deeds are so visible and so public that it points people to Jesus what about that verse where Jesus says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing, right? Don't, if you do something good, don't do it so people see it. How do these ideas fit together? And, and the question is, are good deeds, the, when we do things that point, uh, who do they point to? Who do they bring glory to? Right? We have all heard the bit on Facebook where you've seen like the humble brag that someone does or the, the virtue signaling where they, they point out how holy and righteous they are by their, usually their political beliefs, those kinds of things. That's not what Peter's talking about when he says do good deeds, He's saying that our behavior should point people to the Savior. And that's what Jesus says himself in Matthew 5. Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Okay? And that's the big question for all of us is when they see your works, who does it draw attention to? Do the good deeds that we do point to ourselves and say, boy, those people are really good people. I want to try hard to be more like them. Or the same thing's true for our church mission statement, right? We want to be a place where you can experience the love of Jesus through the love of his people. But do they leave saying, boy, I believe Jesus loves me? Or do they leave saying, oh, there's a bunch of really nice people in that church? And the question is, who gets the glory for the good deeds that we do? And the reason this is important is because as Christians, we have to return to this question, what are we known for? Like and answer it honestly, what are the deeds that we are known for in our world? And that answer is often very troubling. Okay, Our deeds point people to Jesus one way or another. So are they good deeds that glorify God or are they deeds that are evil or wicked and they bring shame on the gospel that we proclaim? Our our boys are on a a baseball team and we're, as a new team this year, and we're trying to get to know some of the parents. And there's always that awkward moment where they're like, so what do you do for a living? And I'm like, oh, I'm a pastor. They're like, I'm sorry for all my language and the way I've been cussing the last (laughs) three weeks kind of thing. Um, But there's, there is this one guy I met this week who, who found that out and he goes, hmm, that's interesting. Uh, And his job is he tears down buildings for a living. Like he he has this big wrecking ball. He brings buildings down. He said a few weeks ago he got hired to tear down an old church because they were uh, going to level it, and then they're going to build a bigger church in its place. And he was all ready to, to have the wrecking ball go. And he got a call from the, the pastor and some of the board members saying, uh, hold off till we get there. We don't want you to tear it down yet. So he's like sitting in his machine waiting. They show up. They spray paint the name of one of the elders that they don't like on the side of the church. And then they film him tearing <laughs> the church down and smashing into that guy's name. And here's the part that's really troubling about this is this, this gentleman on our team as far as I know, who's not a follower of Christ. And he says, and that didn't seem very Christian to me, but what do I know? And just kind of left it at that. Like, what do I know? Like, maybe that is who those Christians really are. And that's the question we have to ask ourselves is, does the behavior that we are known for, what kind of picture of Jesus does that show to the world? Do we show a beautiful picture of a beautiful Savior? Or do we show a corrupt picture of someone who is not at all what the Bible shares Jesus to be? So that, that's, the, that's the challenging question for all of us. And so as, as we go through these next few weeks, Peter is gonna ha- have lots of different applications. And the one application we wanna dive into today is what he goes next in these next five verses, is what does that behavior look like when it comes to society and government? Okay, so we're gonna read these verses, but in the back of your mind, keep asking yourself, does the beauty of our behavior reflect the beauty of our Savior? So let's look at verses 13 and following. Be subject for the Lord's sake And and so uh, um, this is a good place to be reminded if this is really God's word, there's gonna be plenty of places where it rubs us the wrong way and it tells us things we don't really wanna hear. Okay, so look at verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Talk about one of the most un-American verses that you could ever have in the Bible. This idea of submitting to the government that is over you. But again, we have to remind ourselves there's this war going on in our souls. Remember the passions that wage war against our flesh. And so when we come to God's word, if it really is the word of God, if it really is true, and if it's really given out of his love, we should expect it to push against our natural desires in some places. But, but even this verse that talks about the role of government in our lives is the same theme being worked out as what we've been talking about. The beauty of our behavior should point to the beauty of our Savior. And look at verse 15 to see what I mean. It says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. He's saying that we should be known for doing good in our society and with relationship to our government so that we can silence the objections that come against our faith. And notice he doesn't say, uh, have a better rational argument so you can defeat the people who attack you. He's saying, be so known for doing good deeds that when they see those good deeds, your good deeds will silence the attacks that come against you. I think as American Christians, we need to spend less time defending our reputation and more time reflecting the character of Jesus who has saved us. That's what he's pointing to here. And so the thing with that is eventually the good deeds of the church should change the reputation that we have in society. And and so in the Roman Empire, there was, after a few hundred years, they were no longer known as incestuous incestuous, atheistic cannibals. Instead, they became known as the people who loved others really, really well. But do you know what was used in order to have that identity shift take place in society? This, This little thing we know as the bubonic plague. Right? As the plague swept through the Roman Empire and killed so many hundreds of thousands of people, everyone that uh, could afford it fled to the hills and to the mountains and out of the cities to try to avoid getting sick. And the people who stayed behind to care for the sick and the needy were Christians. And it was that demonstration of love, those good deeds, is what changed the Roman Empire in a few decades from being this place that was opposed to Christianity to saw the value of what Jesus had done in changing people's hearts. And it's because they were motivated by love. The beauty of their behavior reflected the beauty of their Savior. That's what changed their identity in society. And so, so with that, that should reflect how we think about our role to government. Let's look again at verses 13 and 14. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the empress supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And so what Peter's doing is he, this is a very similar thing to what Paul does in Romans chapter 13. He says, here is a biblical view of government. Okay, God is the one who ordained these institutions of government and he did that for them to accomplish two things, to punish the wrongdoer and to praise those who do good. Okay, so, so punishing evil and promoting the common good is what government should be doing when it is functioning in a healthy way. That, that's how God instituted government to work, to organize society, to punish the wrongdoer, and to praise those who do good. And that's when it is working correctly. Okay, but you don't have to be much of a history major to realize Peter, the guy who is writing this, was later crucified upside down by this exact same Roman Empire emperor he is writing about right now. Most likely Nero was the emperor when he was writing this, and he'd be the same guy who would kill him probably five to six years after he wrote this book. And so with that, we're saying, be subject to the Lord, for, the, for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That has its limits, okay? But the limit of when you stop submitting to government is when it becomes a sin. Because like Peter could have denied Jesus and he would have not been crucified by Nero. But that denial of Jesus would have been a sin. That's why Peter says in Acts 5, he says we must obey God rather than men. Okay, our, re- our relationship to our government should be one where we, until it is a sin, we are called to submit. But the thing here also that's interesting is when he talks about submitting to every human institution, he's, he's actually saying to every creature, like the word institution is actually the word creature. And I think what Peter's doing by using that word is saying, ultimately, you don't submit to institutions, you submit to the people who are behind those institutions, Okay, like if you're in the military, you don't submit to your orders, you submit to the sergeant who gives you those orders. Right? You, you don't submit to the speed limit as a sign, you submit to the cop who pulls you over and gives you the ticket, that kind of thing. Okay? And so with that, what that changes is the reason why we submit to them is because it's something God ordained and it's given to us by people who are honored by God because they were created in his own image. So think about, uh, even at this point in history, before Nero went crazy and and started persecuting Christians, uh, he was still a bad dude, right? Nero was never known for having the kind of exemplary character that you would want to have in a leader. And Peter doesn't say, hey, because this leader is not a very godly man, you're off the hook for submitting to them. Okay, instead what he says is, the way that you submit to the government is done unto the Lord and shows society the kind of Savior that we have in Jesus, so what it means with, with, with whoever is in office, no matter if it's a state level, a local level, or a national level, there's plenty of times in our lives that we don't agree with the leaders that we have. Or if the leader's character doesn't align with who God has, what, what good character should look like in a leader. But that doesn't change the command here to submit to government until it is a sin. Okay? And once they ask us to sin, that's the line of where we no longer submit. But up until that point, the reason we do is so that we can silence the objections that come against us. We can be known for our good deeds in society and and show people the Savior that we have in Jesus. And the reason that is, is because uh, God wants us to be good citizens because good citizens are better missionaries, okay? If we are a bad citizen, that is going to make us a bad missionary in our society, but good citizens are better missionaries. And so because of that, let's look at verse 16, uh, uh, verse 16. It says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. He's saying the reason we can submit to government is because we already have a different ruler who we are submitted to. We are are free in Christ. We've been set free from the bondage of sin and slavery to those inner passions that we have. And because of that, we have become slaves or servants uh, bonded to Jesus as our Savior. We, we, We don't have to fight for our Um, ability to do what we want because we've already submitted our wills to Jesus following him as our Savior. And so then he wraps up this passage in verse 17 where he ties it together saying, this is the heart posture that needs to have uh, as we behave. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Okay, so he gives us four commands here related to four different types of people and says that if we do these things, that is the way that we will be known for having a behavior that reflects the character of our Savior. If we do these four things, that is what a beautiful behavior that points people to the beauty of our Savior should look like. So the first thing he says is honor everyone. Honor means to to, to give respect, to be clear on the value that someone has, to, to be courteous and kind to them. And we're to honor everyone. There is no person who is unworthy of us showing them honor because there is no person who is not made in the image of God. If we are all created in God's image, we all have this reflection of his glory. And because of that, we have dignity internal to us and we need to reflect that dignity with how we interact with other people. We're to honor everyone. The next thing that he does is uh, sets the bar a little bit higher. He says, but love the brotherhood. Okay, we, we, we're kind to everyone, but the love that we demonstrate for other brothers and sisters in Christ should be a level above that that shows the world the uniqueness of our community that we have as followers of Christ. This is similar to what Paul says in Galatians 6 where he says, do good to all, but especially to those of the household of faith. Okay, there is no one who we are not called to love, but we should especially be known for loving the household of faith, to loving other Christians. Because that shows the world that our community is distinct. And in light of that, the top of this, the highest thing that we can do, says is fear God. So, so we honor everyone, we love the brotherhood, but only God is worthy of our fear, our awe, our adoration, our worship, those things, because God alone is in that unique category. And because of that, he then goes back to the beginning and says, "Honor the emperor." And this is like the most like subtle jab you could make uh, against the emperor at the time, because in the first century, the Romans did this uh, practice of emperor worship. All right, so Nero had told the Roman Empire that he was a god and that he deserved to be worshipped as a god. They had temples for him that people would go offer sacrifices to him as a god. And so when Peter is saying that God, the God of the Bible alone is worthy of our awe and fear, but Nero still deserves our honor, what he's doing is he's putting him back at that bottom level. He's saying the reason you honor the emperor is because the emperor is a person, just like every other person you're going to meet. Okay? And that's what we should be known for, for how we relate to our political leaders as well. Right? Like, if you think about the last president that we've had that you didn't agree with, whether it's our current president or previous president, because one of those two is going to really get everyone upset one way or the other, right? But if you think about it, like, the, is the way that you spoke about Trump, did that honor him as someone made in the image of God? But, what, what, it, it, can you have a Let's Go Brandon bumper sticker and say that you are honoring him as someone made in the image of God? Uh, the, the way that we speak about our governor, our elected officials, all of those things does that reflect the honor that they have as as someone made in God's image? And the reason I love how challenging this is is because it hits all of us equally. There is none of us who naturally shows honor to people like we should, like God calls us to. And because of that, this challenge to repent and say, we don't always live this out is something that is, is equal. Like Billy Graham used to say, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all need to hear this challenge to honor everyone, to love the brotherhood, and to fear God and him alone. So then as we reflect on this, as we look at these verses and we say, okay, what are we known for? Let's just return to that question one last time. What are we known for? When people think of us, what comes to mind? And the reality is that too often my own behavior does not reflect the beauty of Jesus as my Savior. And I think if you're honest, you'd say the same thing, that our behavior often doesn't line up with that. So we, we, we are called the bride of Christ. As the church, that's who we are, is we are his bride. But our wedding dress is stained and tattered and ragged all the time. Okay, we often don't reflect the glory and the beauty of Jesus as our Savior. So then the question is, what do we do about that? If we stumble in so many ways, how is it that we could ever have the beauty of our behavior align with the beauty of our Savior? And I think what I want us to do is to realize that ultimately it's not about us. That, that question, what comes to mind when they think about you, is a, is not an important question as what comes to mind when they think about Jesus. And so our, our desire is to show people the beauty of who Jesus is, and as we do that, our behavior will more naturally align with who God has called us to be. So here's what I mean. Look down a few verses at verses 22 and following. Chapter two. It says, Jesus committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he is reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Ultimately, it's the fact that no matter how corrupt our behavior gets, that sin was placed on Jesus on the cross. And if he already died and paid the penalty for those sins that we do, those those misbehaviors that we are known for, then our job is not to try to clean up our behavior so people look at us. Our job is to point people to the Savior who has already made us clean in his sight through his death and resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're, we're so grateful for these verses and the way that they remind us of, of how important our behavior is uh, and the way that they convict us and show us that ultimately only your son lived that perfect life. So God, I pray that as we hide ourselves in him, as we find our identity in him, as we return to him as the shepherd and overseer of our souls, I pray that our behavior would look more and more like him with each and every passing day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, if uh, this is your first time that you're here, we're so glad you're worshiping with us this morning. Uh, the reason we sit at these tables like this is so that we can spend some time studying a passage of the Bible together, and then we can turn inward to our tables and we can process and share what God is doing in our hearts. So we have some questions on the screen behind me to to guide our discussion. We'll take about 10 minutes or so to do that. And again, these uh, uh, questions are, it's, uh, f- fair, uh, it's o- open season, Answer however you would like, uh, be honest, uh, and, and all of these things, and know that no matter what you say, you'll be loved well at your table. So, the first question is uh, What is your flesh passionate about? What does the war feel like and how does God enable you to sustain? So that goes back to verse 11, that internal war that we have. What are the things we struggle with and how does God enable us to to grow in those things? Again, this is why it's important to to know that you can just share whatever you're comfortable with. There's not pressure to share beyond what you're able to be vulnerable about. Uh, Secondly, uh, when people think of you, what comes to mind? When people think of the American church, what comes to mind? And how is Jesus different and better? How can we help people think of Jesus instead of us? Like that idea of what is it our identity's showing? And then lastly, what good deeds would you like our church to be known for as a way of bringing glory to God? What beautiful behavior would direct attention to a beautiful Savior? So this can either be like, what are we currently doing? But but what are some areas that we're struggling in? How could we do better of pointing people to Jesus by the kind of behavior we're known for? So like I said, we'll do that for, I don't know, seven to ten minutes, and we'll end with the time of worship.
2: Okay, we're going to transition now to a time of communion. I'm just going to start with rereading 1 Peter 2, 22 through the end. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body and on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were stray like sheep, but we have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Here at Missy day we practice open communion, um, so you don't need to be a partner. Um, you could be someone just passing through town, but if you love Jesus and know that He loves you and He is your Savior, then we invite you to the table. If you haven't put your trust yet in Jesus, then we ask for you to abstain from that, and my wife and I will be in the back corner um, more than happy to talk with you and tell you who Jesus is and how He has changed our lives and loves you individually. I read something from John Newton earlier this week. It was one of his hymns, and at the end it says, My breaches of the law are his, and his obedience is mine. That really is where the cross has connection with me personally and my soul. I get to see someone that 2,000 years ago lived a life that I cannot and will never be worthy of living. Uh, But he knows me and knows my heart, knows when I sin, and how that sin is going to work for him. You know, remember that Peter was not was so confident that he would not betray God uh, and disown him and deny him, and yet he did that. And then we can see later after reading this scripture uh, that he was not worthy to be hung on a cross like Jesus and had to be hung upside down. How do you think the sovereign king of the universe knew what he was doing in Peter's heart by having him have that denial and how much confidence that would instill for him to be the cornerstone of the faith that it was built on from there. We don't know how God is tearing us down or chopping us as a tree down now, uh, but we know that he is sovereign and good and he loves us. So whatever we're walking through now, we can have faith that God is sanctifying us and glorifying us um, for his glory alone. So. Um, let's stand, let's prepare our hearts for communion, and over the next couple songs, we can take it at the tables around us.